This episode originally aired as a patron exclusive. To support us and not miss out on new patron exclusive episodes every Monday, visit patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. Yeah, guys, I've been just trying to decide whether or not, you know, we got to keep you or drop you as friends. I'll just be honest. It's like, it's now, it's decision time. <laughs> and uh, I made some spreadsheets and, you know, we'll see. I've, I've actually delegated all of this to uh, an actuary. <laughs> And uh, we're going to look at the different life tables and we'll, we'll see if we're going to be at the uh, end of the day. I've, uh, yeah, now that the pandemic is uh, quote unquote over or quote unquote ending, I've gone ahead. Special surprise for you, Phil. I have hired Emily Oster for all three <laughs> of us to design a Google Docs uh, spreadsheet so that we can calculate whether or not we should remain friends. <laughs> Yeah, it's, but it's, but you know, luckily it'll be luckily it'll be very complicated, hard to use. <laughs> yeah. yeah, is it going to be exactly. any easier to use than her risk calculator? No, definitely not. I can't wait. Welcome to the Death Panel. Patrons, thank you so much as always for supporting the show. We couldn't do any of this without you. So we really appreciate it. If you'd like to help us out a little more, tweet about the show, share it with your friends, you know, just engage in social reproduction and tell people about Death Panel. All right. So today we're going to get into the New York Times Friendship Eugenics article. And some of the broader history. Right. Yes. But first, I wanted to talk about Death Panel, the movie featuring Julia Stiles, Janine Garofalo, <laughs> yes. and the one and only Kelsey Grammer, Kelsey which is coming Grammer. out this summer. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah, Phil, Phil alerted the, us to this a while ago, but I guess next month, Death Panel, the movie. I mean, it's called The God Committee. <laughs> and it's not, you know, if you were like thinking, oh, what, what would Death Panel, the movie be? I would probably, you know, assume it would be about the like public debate in like the 2009 cycle about the whole like Sarah Palin death panels thing as a as a bromide against socialized medicine. But instead, no, this is a it's a movie about the system of valuation for organ transplant selection. Well, I mean, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, if we think back to like the, the 60s, it was the whole idea of like how many people could be on the like new and improved dialysis treatment in, in Seattle, right? But now it's like the, uh, they, they've sort of transplanted that story to like, okay, <laughs> here's the committee that decides, you know, who, who gets uh, the uh, the next organ. Yeah, I mean, I love how, I love how this appears to just romanticize the scarcity of organs, especially using uh, the heart as this sort of pivotal thing. So the whole idea behind the movie is that this committee, this like ethics committee within a hospital has like one hour to decide who gets a heart transplant because the first patient that was supposed to get it that had made it up on the list dies. So they only have so much time to reassign the organ. So it's, and they have to decide whose life is worth saving, basically. Yes, like the yeah. kind of yeah, the kind of stuff that people worry about when they talk about socialized medicine, but also ironically, you know, the kind of stuff that well, yeah. is what happens in <laughs> the central tension, of course, arises when a rich person um 
who played is by one Dan Hedaya, the uh, <laughs> really? the clue, the dad from Clu- reprising his role as the dad from Clueless, which I was very excited to see. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. So yeah, he's a he's the rich transplant recipient. Um, candidate whose like father offers to donate like 25 million to the hospital so it's a balance in order to get the transplant who shall live who shall die how many lives can we save with this philanthropic donation versus it's just one heart it sounds like it's going to be awesome yeah i'm really i'm really excited and i think as ever like you know like very few movies there will actually be a uh uh, sort of educational portion at the end where Cass Sunstein uh, comes out there with a chalkboard and calculates <laughs> what the actual value of the human life is right, uh, exactly. for you. But uh, we may have to have our own uh, screening of this. Uh, yeah. I'm, I am very excited about this film. S- screening a review or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's not it's not every day that you get a death panel movie. I keep thinking I just I can only think about it in in context of like one of my favorite mr show sketches which is coupon the movie oh which yeah of yes. course <laughs> an- ends in the establishment of uh you know in order to make their investment back they turn it into a ride so you get coupon the movie the, the ride, ride. Yes. Yes, god, exactly. god committee, the ride. so the god yeah i could imagine <laughs> you know the god committee the ride but the funny thing is actually this already exists as sort of a multi multiple uh media formats because did you guys know this is initially a play yeah apparently yeah um, oh, this seems like it would work as a play probably yeah. that means that no i feel like that would that means that it doesn't work as a movie but i, I don't know <laughs> well i don't know if it worked as a play because can i just I'm, <laughs> if i recall it was this, not super successful can i read you something that may i i know that this is i don't you know i don't know how much this the story or whatever has changed in this uh adaptation or change or if it's simply that they have used the same name the god committee but i know that the writer uh the the writer of the play is supposed to be also um involved so i don't know to what degree this has changed but let me just read something from the uh 2006 new york times uh theater review of the god committee the play not starring kelsey (laughs) grammar not the ride Uh, not the the ride not the the movie not the video game not the novelization of the video game not the graphic novel the god committee the play here is a, a snippet from the review when a play aims to convey a message with a capital M, Uh-oh. it's the equivalent of a yellow flag on the racetrack. Everyone involved should proceed with caution. <laughs> the God Committee, which opened on Wednesday in 2006 at the Lambs Theater, is about organ donation and the moral, ethical, and emotional debate that surrounds it. It's even sponsored by the New York Organ Donor Network, which is a table in the lobby to capitalize on the right-mindedness that the play is striving to provoke. So indeed, the God Committee, the play, the ride. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm all for, o- I'm all for o- organ donation. This is the reviewer, the Times reviewer speaking. <laughs> I'm against it. I'm for the organs, but I'm against not the against organ donation. But <laughs> I'm all for organ donation, but this positive feeling does not automatically transfer to a play that comes off as a self-conscious cross between 12 angry men and the television show ER. No, this is absolutely cool yeah. though. No, yes, this is good. No, I want like one of the I, I wish that as a play it would have been like one of those um 
uh, like Ferrando Arabal or something like you come in and they actually try to like like take out your organs or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, it does. Uh, they, uh, I guess, according to this review, the play took place sort of in the round. Like yeah. the audience was seated around basically. I think there were two sets, but like. Uh, the audience was seated for one of the main sets basically around the boardroom where the decision was being made. So it does. Yeah. It, you know, you're right. And then there. as an audience you're member, right you wake up the it's next like- day in a bathtub full of ice with instructions to contact the hospital immediately. <laughs> exactly. I've always wanted to go to a play where I could imagine myself as being like the anthropomorphized Cisco <laughs> conference system. Just, you know, presiding over deliberations in the boardroom like some sort of you know hand of god checking in on mere mortals you know oh, that would be a great greek chorus in this play i guess we'll um keep everybody updated oh, I can't about wait. the god committee starring kelsey grammar <laughs> i mean it's it's it actually this is uh kind of like the perfect um thing to talk about before we get into the new york times eugenics friend landscaping article because you know like one of the things that i think you know is not necessarily often talked about is actually how arbitrary a lot of these like decisions about who gets organs are and how you qualify it's it's there's very little regulation actually dictating what they're supposed to consider and even though it's illegal to discriminate against people with disabilities it happens all the time yeah i mean and and kind of as a matter of course right i mean not only i think a lot of people don't really know when you're on the organ transplant list waiting for an organ you often have to adhere to a bunch of very moralizing principles about Mm -hmm. like your behavior you have to do drug tests and stuff like that yeah people have to like do drug screening they have to um stay employed to look like a more attractive candidate they take into account all sorts of things and if you look at study after study what you see over and over and over again is the significant portion of doctors and hospitals who just say point blank you know, based on someone's intellectual capacity, if they have an intellectual disability, if their IQ is below a certain threshold, well, you know, we're going to automatically just disqualify them from receiving an organ. So this has stopped like people with Down syndrome, but also anyone that just has happened to have a low IQ rating thrown on their medical chart, right? Because it really depends. Like if you've got a racist asshole as your doctor and you don't have a lot of choice over who your doctor is, that's going to have a huge influence on your like eligibility for a transplant yeah but also like you shouldn't be disqualified as quote-unquote worthy for simply i don't know alcohol you know what right. i mean or smoking a little bit of weed right because yeah. you know again makes it ironic that you know people extrapolate from this oh the socialist death panels are coming when so much of the whole idea is like basically okay we're gonna we're, we're going to have this triage system entirely based around who will have you know the most productive like what work hours afterwards who, who will be yeah, the best I mean, it's all build up their friends <laughs> <laughs> it's all about avoiding you know developing dependency and trying to find the candidates who are going to be the most successful organ recipients and the kind of stuff that they look at is, is this person uh, theoretically able to comply with their immunosuppressive regimen and sort of the blanket decision that's been made and the common answer is, well, if someone's intellectually disabled, they can't and therefore don't qualify. But if you look at the like 
compliance records of people with intellectual disabilities, medication compliance is not the problem that uh, transplant boards make it out to be. Right. You know what I mean? Like a lot of this stuff doesn't actually hold up when you dig into the science. The science actually says the exact opposite of the sort of prevailing common sense that dictates a lot of these decisions that go on that, you know, just sort of arbitrarily deny people the care that they're entitled to and deserve based on these really arcane, very like 1950s idea of like who will be productive and who will be a burden and who is worth saving. And, you know, well, that makes sense. And as we'll, you know, I think talk about in the rest of this episode, uh, you know, it makes sense because prejudices uh, die hard, apparently. Yeah, the God Committee is everywhere, apparently. <laughs> right. The God Committee is also you. Yeah, the God Committee <laughs> you, is us. You have a personal responsibility to, uh, to yeah, your body and your life are your precious fluids and you must treat them <laughs> like a bonsai and you must trim them and you must trim your social relationships. We should set up what we're going to talk about. Right. So to get into our main topic, on June 1st, a beautiful, lovely piece of eugenics dropped in the New York Times op-ed page. There was a article by someone named Kate Murphy published called How to Rearrange Your Post-Pandemic Friendscape, which basically this article advocates that people have been presented with a wonderful opportunity in this pandemic to really you know, evaluate what matters in their life. And and what better time than this, where we've all been sort of, you know, self-imposed and social isolation to to curate your friends and eliminate the degenerate the friends. The undesirables. Exactly. Yeah. Eliminate the undesirable friends. Get those, you know, emotionally burdensome friends out of your life. You don't have capacity for that <laughs> right now. Well, and I want to be clear on why I think we chose as a group to talk about this which is that so it was interesting actually to see for example this become kind of like this this was uh this got shared around a lot this be, this became you know one of those few but occasional examples of a uh, new york times article becoming viral for being just like hokum mm-hmm. you know what i mean um or you know which i think often happens uh, especially in like certain like um i don't know like left social media spaces or something often happens for you know obviously for like foreign policy stuff or for political ideology stuff but this like spread across a lot of categories and the funny thing is this stuff happens all the time and gets printed fucking constantly in a way it's like good that this time it became kind of like a viral splash yeah it's not a new idea at all it's it's based on the popular theory that you are the sum or like average of the people that you spend the most time with. So we'll get into the history of that idea a little bit later because it's really interesting. You can really actually trace the route all the way back to, you know, legitimate capital E eugenics. But, you know, this essay argues that, quote unquote, according to science, certain traits and behaviors, which according to the author are negative, like obesity, depression, or people who drink and smoke a lot, Um, are a potent social contagion. And if you do not purge them from your life, you know, this bio destiny that your friend has inherited is not only their fate, but you can catch it like a disease. And it's, you know, this article very clearly says, dropped your depressed friends ASAP before they make you depressed too. And I'm, this is not like an exaggeration, like literally um, Murphy writes, quote, indeed, depressed friends make it more likely you'll be depressed. Obese friends make it more likely you'll become obese. And friends who smoke or drink a lot make it more likely you'll do the same. 
The reverse is also true. You will be more studious, kind, and enterprising oh, yeah. if you consort with studious, consort. kind, and enterprising people. If you consort at court. Yeah. You know, we, 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 we joke, but this is why Phil and I are going blind. Yes, so. it's true. It's unfortunate. And um, curse you be. So I think it's worth, let's, uh, let's really quickly, I'm going to run through a couple of the key things that the article says, and then we can kind of take it away with some of the historical grounding for where these things even uh, come from, because it's easy. It's one thing to easily say, you know, this is, uh, this is on the, on the face of it, just, you know, blatantly kind of like discriminatory or or you know like quackery or whatever but um there's a whole as you know as b can trace there's a whole sort of let me, let me put it this way eugenics cares deeply about heredity <laughs> so we're gonna we'll trace a little bit of the family, the family tree, tree of the of this idea of these ideas but okay so just to just to explain they say things in this like quote as pandemic restrictions ease in the United States and we may once again belly up to an all-you-can-eat buffet of social activity, the question is, will we pile our plates and gorge or be more selective and stick to what nourishes and sustains us? Psychologists, sociologists, and evolutionary anthropologists <laughs> say it behooves us to take a more curatorial approach when it comes to our friends because who you hang out with determines who you are. Um, I love then, this. It's like if you enjoy your friendships and you base your friendships on your enjoyment of that time that you spend with that person, you're fu you're fucking doing it wrong. The way to do it is to curate and select it. It doesn't right. matter if you're having fun with your friends. It matters if your friends are powerful and important enough to reflect power and importance on you. Yeah. They then go on to say, having friends who encourage, stimulate, and support you is associated with improved immunity, lower blood pressure, and higher cognitive function. Having no friends, toxic friends, or superficial friends, fake friends, no fake friends, uh, not only can make you feel insecure, lonely, or depressed, but also can accelerate cellular aging and increase <laughs> your risk of premature death. Right, but this isn't an issue of social determinants of health. This is an individual, like an individuated issue of personal friend curation. Yeah, it's, right? it's the personal responsibility narrative of uh, why you're sad all the time right. or something. Right, yeah. it's not that capitalism alienates you. It's just that you've chosen to be friends with people who feel alienated by capitalism. <laughs> Therefore, you also feel alienated by capitalism. And if you just change your friends, you'll be okay with this extractive lifestyle. Yeah. Uh, they go on. Uh, it seems as if it should be easy to distinguish between true and false friends. Again, we have this like fake friends uh, <laughs> binary. So this is so Facebook. This Wait, is so, yeah. this is so MySpace. I love it. I mean, it's so like Bravo TV show, like reality television <laughs> yes. or something. No, absolutely. Um, research shows that only half of our friendships are mutual. That is only half of those who we think are our friends feel the same way about us you know basically what it's basically like what it is getting into here is yeah this thing which honestly when i saw this i was like this is really funny that someone bothered to research this because i'm kind of wondering like this is a very to have this question as your research question like how many fake friends does any given individual have is like kind of a who hurt you <laughs> question you know uh, and then yeah really directly indeed depressed friends make it more likely to be depressed obese friends make it more likely to become obese and friends who smoke or drink a lot make it more likely you'll do the same uh as as be mentioned before and so this is the i mean i'd say that this is the main 
thrust overall of the article. It's trying to couch all of this stuff, social relationship as pathology or as uh, health impact, this sort of like almost, I don't know, like um, you must broken windows police yourself kind of framework into this overall framing of now that the pandemic is quote unquote over or whatever, it's time for you to evaluate these things and to do and, you know, as and as we all must in, you know, contemporary neoliberal society, like take it upon our own personal responsibility to be able to produce our own health and produce our own happiness that systemic issues have like no have no play here whatsoever. You know, it is on you to it is on you to do this. And the principal way that you can do this, one principal way that you can do this is by, I don't know, being a complete fucking asshole to the people around you and just exiting parts of your community, I guess. Right. Yeah. yeah I mean, can we like just just do one thing here, which is uh, make a, a, a an important conceptual clarification. She's using the word friends over and over again here. It is not clear to me at all that friend now means anything different than simply like one who exists or resides within a social network. Like friendship as such is is just like the fact that this article could be written, regardless of the fact that it's just like very easily lampoonable, uh, which it is. uh, But the fact that this article Mm -hmm. could be written now just like fully uh, clarifies the fact that like friendship as a popular concept has just been emptied of any meaning it once contained. There's no, there's no sense that like friendship is about solidarity or like connection between mm-hmm. people or like what we owe to one another right. or anything like that. It's just like the people with whom one happens to randomly like, like an atom <laughs> just be near. Um, and then it's like, then the sort of like, or a, a, sort of unit in a population ecology. And then that's that's how you get to like the meta- <laughs> metaphorizing of like contagion. But like at no point in this piece is the idea of friend does the idea of friendship contain any fucking meaning at all. Like yeah. it's it's like yeah. beautiful how contentless it is. That's a yeah, really good point. Such it's a good like point, Phil. it's like written for it just assumes already that you that everyone, every individual reading this is you know existing within this entirely solipsistic internal philosophical worldview where <laughs> you know they're the only person that exists they're the only person that matters you know it, it's so funny because it's talking about oh the like the mental health implications on yourself of having these specific not just mental health but actually physical health ironically like right. uh, tragically your survival your, depends on it in most of these frames right but then taking that to its logical conclusion which is essentially to protect your physical and mental health this is your opportunity the pandemic uh, that having this weird pandemic sejura or whatever in your social <laughs> life allows you to excise people who are unhealthy relationships to you because they encourage your unhealthy behaviors in some way, entirely encouraging to, you to basically discount the value uh, to other people of your social relationship. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's I mean, it's wildly individualistic in addition to basically being premised on this bullshit pop psychology. The thing about this article that's like, okay, yeah, it's it's very it's, it's like a joke how bad it is. But at the same time, like I in parts of in points in my life where I have been very depressed uh, or have been going through a bad time, I can recall talking to my therapist and be like, yeah, I feel really uh, incompetent 
as a friend because I'm not like funny right now. I don't have a lot to contribute. I feel like I'm a drag. And it's like that very fact suggests that this article is an embodiment of a broader social philosophy, not of friendship, but of social capitalism. Right. Phil, I think that's such an important point, because what this article really shows is how it, it shows one of the ways that we make people who have traits which are stigmatized and sort of deemed in pop culture to be negative, bad traits, you know, like depression or whatever. What does this article say? Depression, obesity and drinks and smokes a lot, which I think is like a hilarious cross section of of really, you know, some of, my, some of my favorite people have <laughs> many of those traits. Right. Yeah, I mean, and I love that also you always really see this framed as a sort of slothful position, right? It's the slothful versus the entrepreneurial. And and I think what what this does and what this is, is evidence of how people are made to feel a burden, Right. It's evidence of how people, when they are depressed, are made to feel like they are a bad friend because these things aren't just inherent ideas that pop into our head. They are they are socially constructed. They are socially reproduced. They have to come from somewhere. Right. You can trace. I've traced this all the way back to the 40s. But basically, this idea is that every person sort of comprises themselves through their social relations. And the interesting thing is that actually the work on this coming out of sociology and psychology has actually been really influential in designing social networks and the kind of ways that friendship accumulation works in social networks. And it also has been influential in designing systems to evaluate and surveil employees for potential you know, traits which could disrupt the flow of the workforce. So it's this really um, kind of unusual mindset that you see over and over and over again, which is just this idea that we sort of collect and build from the people around us. So if we're collecting and building ourselves from bad people, we will become bad ourselves through osmosis, through contagion. So like be this this idea that like you are the sum of your friends, uh, which by which I mean like friends is not the right word there, obviously. You are the sum of your social connections. Like, where does that come from? So uh, let's go back to the eugenics movement. Let's say, like, let's go back to the 30s, right? What's going on in the late 20s to mid 30s in the eugenics movement is you have them looking for how these sort of bad traits are passed from generation to generation, but they're getting results that they can't totally explain. So eugenics starts to develop this sort of secondary hypothesis that not only can you inherit negative traits, but that they are a sort of social contagion and that oh. through, through human capacity to mimic the people who influence us, that these traits not only spread through breeding, but they also <laughs> spread through social relations. Lovely. So this is like eugenics going from biology to sociology. Yeah, it's eugenics evolving, so to speak. Or I mean, I'm, I'm, as, as far as I understand it, to a certain degree, they were always kind of imbricated anyway. Yeah, right? I, I mean, mean, it's yeah. really just expanding the scope of study to say, you know, what are the other things that actually could contribute to this beyond the bio-destiny angle? You know, they're, they're basically arguing that this is a much larger question that requires much uh, more sufficient funding for this kind of research. Right. But I think this I think it's interesting and important that you kind of start here uh, in terms of going back to basically, you know, basically reminding that it's important, I think, to remind everyone, you know, that eugenics was 
very invested in the discipline of like uh, sociology and was very mm-hmm. invested in the sort of individual level psychology pathologization uh, and all of this stuff because I think to a certain degree whereas we could say or we could imagine like oh well you know we we uh, eugenics went away when we beat Hitler or some, <laughs> right, some shit like right, that right that like despite that narrative a lot of the influence a little bit the basically a lot of the ideas like the like the stuff that you're talking about in terms of the way that uh eugenics was mobilized sociologically both through the disciplines of sociology and through psychology yeah primarily uh, basically we're like you know the almost like those factions kind of like split off and just kind of subsumed themselves into is that the kind of the idea that like those factions split off and subsumed themselves into sort of like sociology and pop psychology well and it's not just pop psychology it's actually very you know it's mainstream psychology i mean it's sort of the foundational ideology of the harvard psychology department comes from this work and so what where it where this idea and this question starts to come in is in the 1927 jamaica study that charles davenport you know, daddy eugenics himself does, where they're looking at, um, you know, rebel slave communities in Jamaica, trying to understand why they were rebelling against colonial occupation and why, according to eugenicists, the um, quote unquote, like mixed race people in Jamaica were more inclined to um, to rebel against colonial rule than people who weren't mixed race, because the idea was that in the race mixing, like that the the white blood was giving the, the black people more power. Right. That it was this sort of transference. And what they found is that it's, you know, this is like absolute dog shit. But what they what they found was sort of these two questions, which is like, yes, it's breeding. But yes, there's also um, political social influence that will drive people to rebel against colonialism. It's not just that they're genetically destined to be unruly right. subjects. There's also this social component. There are many really good reasons to stage a <laughs> coup or rebellion <laughs> right, when you're right. being systemically could it, oppressed. Could it possibly be Who the knew? oppression? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> These so, people are genetically inferior because they're resisting colonialism. <laughs> Right. The beatings will continue until your race improves. <laughs> Sorry. So so this becomes a really compelling research question, particularly for sociologists at the time who are like, oh, yeah, there's also this social dynamic, this political influence sort of multiplier in there. And, and how can we measure that? And so in 1930, you have a guy named Jacob Moreno um, who is the origin of the fake friend idea. Basically, and so what Moreno does is he makes. But his, who's a sociologist? He's, he's a like sociologist. An yeah, he's yeah, a yeah. legitimate, you know, the big institution sociologist. So he makes these things called sociograms, which um, mm. look exactly like those Twitter graphics you see, where you can automate to show like who follows who in your social <laughs> network. It's exactly. It looks exactly the same. Um, and so these little maps that that he made, which documented various connections like workplace connections or social connections among groups. So he would go to like college students and he would ask all of the college students, who are your friends? And he would sort of draw maps and compare people who he said were sociometric 
stars, <laughs> which meant that they picked many others as a friend, but were also picked by many others. And sociometric isolates who were destined to be picked by very few people. And so he comes up with this idea. Kickball theory of humanity. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, though. Yeah. And he comes up with this idea where that you could sort of map influence um, through looking at how sociometric stars constructed their social network and that you could sort of by identifying and targeting sociometric stars, you could improve the human race on that social front, which the eugenicists were trying so hard to measure in addition to this sort of biological race question that's always been at the heart of the eugenics ideology. So he develops these these little maps, which, again, they're everywhere still today. Um, and next comes in the work of a guy named Paul Lazarfeld. Lazarfeld is also a sociologist, and his work starts in the 50s. So this is after World War II. You know, obviously, eugenics kind of gets not so cool as the United States enters World War II and it becomes sort of clear like what the Nazis have done with their euthanasia program, you know, through the Nuremberg trials, it sort of becomes like a uh, a not hot topic within academia. And you have a lot of the people who are working on these kinds of eugenic projects casting about for different things that they could work on where they can take their experience and just apply it to a totally new arena that has nothing to do with public health or euthanasia, right? It's a way of sort of preserving the ideology by just sort of translating yourself left or right. So Paul Lazarfeld gets into um, researching social reproduction and advertising. And what he comes up with is a system to try and measure how these political ideas actually do the flowing between these sort of sociometric maps that you have people like Moreno making. So what Lazarfeld comes up with is this idea, which is really just the modern like Instagram influencer, which is these sociometric stars that exist, um, according to Moreno's work, that they can be leveraged in order to wield extreme political influence by taking sociometric stars and putting them on television and doing A-B testing to see what was the most effective way for that sociometric star to convey propaganda and messaging. And so his work really developed stuff like political feedback meters for live television events like debates. And it's all based on this idea that this you know, curation of the five most influential people in your life, the core foreground friendships, that that's like such an important group. So if you could find enough people and fundamentally influence them such that they would influence their core groups, that you could politically revolutionize America through this sort of pathway of influence. Well, this is really interesting because like in one sense, it's is really interesting to see where this idea comes from. But the other thing is like everything you're talking about, like sociograms, um, theories of influencers, uh, you know, pr pretty um, common vernacular aspects of like the way that I think business works, like and have this like very long lineage and and kind of bland like history in a history of sociology. And I think it's like fascinating that they have this sort of uh, this origin point that that's really about not so much uh, understanding the world, but a very particular like moral and, and political view of like 
what the ideal uh, world should look like. They're, they're, they were intended to be an engine rather than a, than a camera. Right. And I mean, it comes from this initial research question, right, which has the founding mission of eugenics, which is not just to study and classify difference, but to remake it in a better, more perfect to image. optimize the world or something. Exactly. Yeah. Optimize efficiency, you know, avoiding dependency and burdens and, and social uh, viruses and leeches well, and contagions. Which makes sense why then this, not only within, you know, as you're mentioning, Phil, the discipline of like um, sociology, but why these methods so clearly appear in things like, um, you know, you mentioned A-B testing, uh, B, but like things like focus groups, for mm-hmm. example, you know model this like pretty much exactly also things like i mean i guess you know even the the reason to talk about this in the first place is because you know in the for for example in like the private sphere these ideas get modeled to uh employee screening Mm -hmm. and stuff for for traits or even in you know if you're familiar with um you'll hear uh people from like facebook or google or something talk about how they've like hired these like really innovative interesting architects or something to make to make it so that their open workspaces like encourage maximizing like the flow of uh Mm -hmm. individual employees to like run into each other so people can't be alone but they are sort of forced to socialize and and uh and you know, build like build up these these relationships that are sort of pseudo engineered. Like that all comes from this. But then also, I mean, but then on the sort of public side of things, you know, these are this behavior modeling clearly seems to be like the root of looking at sort of social incentivization or control as like the appropriate way to do public policy as in the you know um we don't want the person we don't want like the person who's on welfare to have too many shoes in the house kind of thing right right well and and i mean what it really is is so you have this tremendously bad public image that um overt direct manipulative eugenics gets right the idea of sort of directly trying to curate incarcerate, sterilize, and exterminate our way to a better population gets this bad rap. So they start looking at and finding other ways that I think people become very convinced are actually more effective because they're able to be accomplished politically without the outrage that it could um, inspire, that it inspired in Jamaica, you know, the resistance to colonial rule that inspired, you know, in the result in the wake of the, you know, revelations about what happened with Germany's uh, euthanasia program. So, you know, as this actually moves forward, you know, as advertising becomes more dominant and this idea moves forward in time and space, we, we're going to shift over to psychology now because that starts to really take off. And um, what you have is this idea starts being studied as a way not only to, you know, influence political relations or influence um, consumer behavior, but it becomes an idea to literally remake someone's mind and ideology. And it starts becoming like, how can we use this idea of five friends and, you know, fake friends and influence and the power of these sociometric stars? How can we use that to um, fight communism? And to, you know, get rid of, of leftist thought and leftist degeneracy and druggies and hippies and, you know, the burdens on society that that we don't like. And so in comes the work of David McClelland, who is a Harvard psychologist, and he is the guy who basically f- came up with the idea of aptitude screening tests for workplaces. And when oh. when is when is this around? So this is like his, he really gets started in the 1950s. So he, okay. you know, 
from the 50s through the 70s, he establishes all these different systems for testing and measuring, you know, work characteristics and reliability. And his idea is that you can build the perfect workforce if you use psychology and you use ideas about personality types and traits, which, you know, is also derived from eugenics, literally, directly. Um, What you can do is you can engineer a workforce that will be docile, that will be on time, (laughs) that will be productive and efficient and optimized. Right. And and I mean, it's like I basically that work out for him. Amazon. (laughs) I mean, what he did, you know, he had this fantastic career, McClellan. He went from Harvard University running the psychology department at one point to being like number one management consultant. He is like proto McKinsey because what he did is this idea was ripped out of the academy and adopted and embraced by the business world. And so you start having all these companies coming to psychologists, like how do we figure out how to motivate our workforce? How do we figure out how to create the perfect worker with the least amount of money? Right. Yeah, it seems like the way that these ideas jump from um, place to place and from um, person to person is, you know, not because they're read or legible as as like, you know, eugenics, but but they end up having these convergent properties that are valuable uh, in one way or another to different parts of the economy. Right. Like and the other thing, too, is like they're sensibly like low cost. Right. The way that you have a perfect worker is not through like paying them more or like <laughs> giving them like like better health care, like giving them more days anyway, off. Like yeah. all of those things have some sa- sacrifice that you have to make that's pretty considerable as an employer uh, and, and like bargaining with labor. But right. the, like these ideas promise a, a a way towards labor peace without labor having any power. Um, exactly. And it sort of reminds me of like the Hawthorne studies uh, in, I think, the 30s in, in Illinois of just like, you know, what if we just like, you know, brought the brought the uh, secretaries like donuts in uh, once in a while and like talk to them <laughs> about stuff, which is totally the techniques uh, that they used to like uh, bust up unions uh, where my mom was working when when she was a, a nurse um, that they, they totally like used that that kind of like sociology to do it. Um, but like this, this seems to like it works not because like all of the people who are buying it are, are like de facto eugenicists, but because they can show that these ideas are like very convergent with, uh, the, the needs and demands of like, uh, of, of capital. Right. Right. And I think it's also given this cover, which actually that this is where the eugenics like history is so important is that so much of this stuff is, um, seated in the idea of, of being sort of human nature, Right. Because all this research isn't just saying like, oh, these social relations exist and are exploitable. What they're saying is that these social relations which exist, which we're studying, are just how people are by way of their nature, by their breeding and their evolution. And we've evolved, you know, in the minds of these researchers, we have evolved intentionally to exploit this. Right. So that this this technique is to these people, and this is ties back all the way back into the New York Times article directly, that this technique is an evolutionary tool, and who are we to not take advantage of it? Right? right. It's this idea that it is like natural. Oh yeah. I mean like right. The, right, like you're saying, like the thing in the New York Times article that's like 
humans have evolved to have friends and exactly. so we should min max our friend groups because exactly. you know the dumb animals can't do it and that's why they're not you know friendship isn't you know it isn't spontaneous <laughs> and ruining the world but. it's not about enjoying your life and solidarity and camaraderie no friendship is a tool that we have evolved and you're an idiot if you don't use it properly well, but it's also like i want to get back to this question of like what friendship is so so let me let me see if i can try to understand this so we have these stars or whatever in our sociograms like the good people who are doing the good behavior <laughs> they they model it and like by culling our the friend group it's supposed to not only improve us right but by what by a, a sort of mimetic pressure improve the people who get excluded because simply by yeah. being excluded you will then learn the lesson that you ought not like you ought not be obese is that is that the implication so that's the thing that i was wondering yeah. in reading this new york times article too because it's like there is no discussion of the people who get uh sanctioned for their you know mm-hmm. I don't know, just uh, uh, what, subversive behaviors or just like deviant behaviors. Um, what ostensibly is is the idea of just like you improve them too by doing this? Well, I think also it's I think it's about this sort of again like pruning improvement, but in some ways it's also I think about there's a there is an aspect of this that is sort of an idea of accepting your station. I think. Stop me if I if you feel like this. Is no, not I think you're right. But yeah. like, um, like for example, to, this is a mi- this is a minor tangent, but I think it shows how you know. B, you've been talking um, about some of, some of the history of these ideas, but it's important beyond um, you know, again beyond these like stupid op ads that are, are sort of our occasion to talk about this to think about how prevalent this is also in academia now. I mean, there's Mm -hmm. a study, I just want to bring up a study from 2017 um, that is just, I mean, that I think um, many of our listeners will probably appreciate, um, which is called the company you keep is socializing with higher status people bad for mental health. I love this one. This is from the journal of sociology of health and illness. Um, again, from 2017. And, you know, I'm not going to go too, uh, too deeply into this, but the, the thrust of their argument, <laughs> which um, specifically is, do people with quote unquote lower status who have friendships or social relationships of some kind with people who are quote unquote higher status, do they materially benefit from that i mean they don't use that word but do they you know do they benefit from it in some way how does it make them feel about themselves and what they essentially say the whole point of this paper is to say <laughs> again 2017 people who are in quote unquote lower status who have social relationships with higher status people it is more common for people who are in uh, who are of lower status to like feel worse about themselves or have more uh, what they categorize as like basically like mental health uh, right. issues or problems based. They say they're you know, drawing a, a pretty broad connection here to say it's, it's sort of because of this. For example, one quote from this quote, these findings suggest that socializing with higher status <laughs> people can be a net detriment for oh mental God. well-being by increasing stress slash frustration or decreasing psychological resources such as self-esteem. 
and that these effects, this is really funny, and that these effects are more pronounced for individuals who perceive that society is unfair. Oh my God. Well, <laughs> like, I, I mean, you've seen, I've seen this argument used to make the absolutely like hilarious assertion that the real problem in the French Revolution was that the people thought they could be the queen. Oh and that simply if, you know, the, the crown had been able to make the people understand that they would never be the queen, that the French Revolution actually wouldn't have happened. So, you know, yeah, that like, was the problem. Actually, and, I mean, and, and we would all live happily ever after. <laughs> Only one person can be the monarch. <laughs> and you sometimes know, two. You guys are both right, though. It's it's both of these things at once. Right. And this is tied up into I mean, if you really want to go elbows deep into like the stuff that I like read and write about all the time is like, you know, this ties into the idea of like, is someone permanently you know dependent and deviant are they incurably deviant or are they curable can they be rehabilitated are they irredeemable deplorable because you know if we're thinking about how this idea um works right as a sort of like sociological phenomenon like that's one thing but 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 what you guys are both talking about is actually like how what happens when this idea is enforced, right? Like, what is the enforcement of this idea? Like, what is the behavior that this idea produces? And what it produces is this tendency to sort of, you know, predetermine that people with lower class status will either always stay there unless they're able to curate themselves their sort of perfect life and break their station, right? And that's sort of seen as this aspirational entrepreneurial enterprising yeah, the self-made whatever mythos yeah right exactly and you know the funny thing is that so david mcclellan's work is so key to this because what he really does is he says you know not only is this important for the survival of society but we will build better capitalism by really exploiting this in the the boss and employee relationship and what he advocates for is basically surveil your employees psychologically profile your employees you know dissect their your their life make these assumptions based on the information and data that you gather about what you can expect from them behaviorally and honest wise and then you sort of organize the hierarchy of your institution and your workforce around these eugenic uh extrapolations about what these per- perceived or you know you know implicit traits could produce as like a workforce social body as a social network of you know labor capital right it, it's incredibly insidious and like the thing that's so funny is that you know what he's really inspired by is the work of his mentor a guy named Henry Murray, who was one of the early founders of the psychology department at any, Harvard. Any relation to Charles? I actually don't know. Okay. But if anyone knows, if anyone let, knows, please, get at us. Yeah. Yeah. Send us a message. <laughs> Is but, Henry Murray related to Charles Murray? I I would love that's that's on my list of questions to answer. <laughs> but <laughs> so <laughs> so Murray is one of those guys who is a psychologist and you know a defense contractor and consultant. He is one of those people who, you know, was tapped by the OSS to profile Adolf Hitler. And he's the guy that said, actually, Adolf Hitler engaged in eugenics because he was gay and he hated himself and he was impotent. And so he had to kill people to get off sexually. This guy is also the beginning of criminal profiling. Um, his system is what the FBI and the CIA ended up using. It's the foundation of the system that we use to profile 
quote unquote terrorists in mm. like the war in Afghanistan and Iraq. This is how we ended up with like the Casio watch thing being a way to get arrested uh, as a shit. terrorist. So Mc- <laughs> McClellan like credits all of his That's work. So fucked up. I know. He credits all. I actually own a Casio watch. Is that? Oh, oh should, man, should I don't know if you want to admit. <laughs> baby, don't admit that on air. Uh oh, uh oh, you're gonna get. Pro, it's really good. It's cheap. It's like fourteen Phil. bucks at Walmart. Like, you know. Do you drive a Toyota? Uh oh. Oh my god, dude! Don't don't out me here. <laughs> See, maybe I'm not the most degenerate one in this social network that's going on right now, right? Yeah. There's degenerates in their Corollas or their Casio watches. <laughs> So, um, so Henry Murray's big work that he did at Harvard was this infamous experiment that some people speculate is part of MK Ultra. But mm. basically, what he did from 1959 to 1962, Murray took uh, a bunch of different cohorts of like freshmen at Harvard, and he subjected them to, in his own words, what he described as um, vehement, sweeping, and personally abusive verbal attacks. <laughs> Is this is this what happened to Ted Kaczynski? Yes, yes. R- really? This is what happened to Ted Kaczynski. Ted Kaczynski was given the code name Lawful because every student had a code name, and and his records. Um, Harvard hasn't been super honest about what happened with his experiment, and like pressure on Harvard to uh, open up these records and make them public was kind of like very popular for a while in the early 2000s, but the demand for that has really died out and people have kind of forgotten about this. But this experiment was disgusting. It was sick. Like, so what he did is he would, um, in, he would interview, he would have his research assistants interview the student and he would get an idea of what their ideology was, what their beliefs were, what they cared about, what their politics were, what they thought, like what their worldview was. And then they would collect all that information and they would devise a strategy to destroy and undermine those beliefs. And they would proceed to verbally berate the students while they were hooked up to electrodes to measure the you know, physiological response to the emotional distress. <laughs> they were also videotaped um, so that their reactions to the the verbal abuse could be documented, like their facial expressions. So, you know, it would be maybe like between two and four hours of constant verbal um, torture, right? Um, and abuse. And so, you know, what they wanted to, to see is sort of how do you break someone's mind? And what they did then is they would put the students in for a next another session where they would have to watch the video of their reaction oh to their verbal beration oh, so while they were again being measured for physiological response to emotional distress. And, you know, you might wonder, like, what is the research question that was proposed here when they pitched the NIH for funding? And it was, what? how do people respond to stress in their lives? <laughs> Lovely. So, you know, this experiment, which McClellan's mentor Murray was working on, Murray's also a, a mentor to Timothy Leary, which is just a, another, like, interesting side fact. But um, So not all bad. Yeah, I mean, so it's like, so the idea was that Murray was trying to learn the secret to to stress, to successful relationships, but also, like, he wanted to see what made someone resilient. What was it? Was it about someone's ideology that made them resist the torture? Was it something about their physiognomy or their constitution or their identity that made them resist the torture and hold on to their beliefs at the end? You know, what it did to Ted Kaczynski is make Ted Kaczynski think that, you know, 
like his worldview, he he self-describes his worldview as completely changing as a result of this, that it made him incredibly depressed. He felt nihilistic. He felt like abandoned and like nothing would ever change and get better and absolutely hopeless. And so what they really were trying to do is, is take, um, you know, scholarship students at Harvard and see if they could break them because they wanted to study not only, you know, what happens under stress, but can you stress someone out and intimidate them out of their politics and right. intimidate them out of their ideological beliefs? If they are constantly challenged on their ideas and told you're stupid, you're wrong, you know, you're not right, you don't know anything, your ideas about scarcity and and morals and how the world works are wrong. Like how often and how much and how do you have to do that in order to basically intimidate the person out of having those beliefs, which ties into what Phil was saying earlier about the sort of what happens to those people who are then excluded if we're going with this sort of friendscaping principle. And it's a kind of like, you know, opportunity for rehabilitation, for for carcerality and punishment, right? It's a, it's encouraging people to basically, you know, make these sort of cost-benefit analyses of their friends and then determine, you know, who should be rewarded for their traits and who should be punished. So like this, ostensibly this, this Cold War, you know, project of people like Henry Murray is, is about, you know, social order ostensibly from, from the view of a sort of a hierarchy in the in the social stratum, right? Uh, it's, it's the question is like, how, how can you get people to like conform essentially? And like, what's what's the sort of genesis of that? The the interesting thing that's happening here is in, in the New York Times article. And I think the way that some of this gets um, treated sort of over time is that it, it, it's really the the direction of the research becomes oriented towards like a question of self-help, right? So right. the the intended uh, audience or, or, or the intended like result is like, do this. And it's not like, oh, from this position of this, you know, hierarchy, you're going to like make a better society, right? The position is like, you will enjoy your life more if you think about your friends as this sort of stock of assets and uh, liabilities uh, sort of on the on the balance sheet. I mean, like, how do we get to that from this Cold War sort of like question of social control and compliance and, and conformity? Well, I mean, one of the things that they're developing in parallel to their study of sort of how these things work, how these relations move between people um, is the idea of also how to use that um, as a sales tactic. So meanwhile, while they're doing this research, a lot of these um, researchers are also taking contracts with advertising companies or big companies that do, um, you know, like production, like they'll take like a 3M lecture. And so you start to see these ideas disseminated into the business world and they start selling these sort of like seminar packages and um, ways of sort of teaching your management. This It's very similar to what you would think of as management consulting now. Um, and people start to um, mimic that sales model, which is sort of based on the idea of this, this sphere of influence business model. And you see the development actually of the self-help industry come out of this research, right? This research is what inspires not only the ideology of self-help, but it also inspires the business model that how the money actually moves around in self-help, which is 
is really through the sort of reliance on these, you know, key figures and the people in their lives and people convinced, you know, absorbing an idea and then disseminating it out to others. So, you know, at at the beginning of the sort of self-help industry, what you have is these direct-to-consumer companies start developing that are selling vitamins that are claiming that not only can you improve your life through, you know, intentionally curating your social relations with people who will buy these products, which will make you successful. And and you're going to tell them that they will be successful by buying the products and doing the same behavior themselves. I mean, this is classic multi-level marketing pyramid scheme shit. Tupperware club shit. Exactly. So it's like, so it's not only doing that, but it's also saying, you know, these companies that are selling this stuff um, are saying also these supplements are going to make you into the sort of ubermensch. It's going to make you a better, stronger, healthier person. And you're also going to get fucking rich at the same time. And this is how you can live the good life and live the American dream. And so this becomes the foundation of the self-help industry, which is really selling this idea of, of optimization. And I already used the term min-maxing before, that there's a way to, to apply data to your life to make your life into the perfect life. And this is this is what you well, know, and it's entirely on you and also that, you know, and in true, you know, eugenic fashion, some people are simply beyond help. You know, maybe they can take on these principles and they can like pull themselves up, but mostly it's up to you to like pull yourself up and, you know, kind of excise them from your life. Exactly. And so this idea just reproduces and reproduces and grows. And, you know, the research questions grow and the industry grows. And and then, you know, you have the self-help industry as it is now, which is very much based around these original principles, still trying to answer the same questions with the same strategies, because it's an incredibly um, compelling line that has developed this incredible incredible history and this incredible dominance, you know, just through um, some really misguided, uh, you know, original questions and framings of where this research and this ideology and this idea about how to build a society, not through any sort of intentional planning, but through the sort of spontaneous curation of good quality people you know, which will produce the right result. Well, more like pruning, not spontaneous in any way. Actually, right. intentional pruning. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Like I can imagine, be that like the author of this article is going to, you know, it's just like, well, no, how how could it possibly be eugenics? This is this is simply about, you know, getting people to like, you know, be more intentional in the connections <laughs> that they make and like right. trying to do things. I mean, like th- this has a lot of. It's it's really funny. It's like the it's the inverse of the the therapeutic that one gets when one feels like excluded uh, or incompetent as a, as a friend uh, because they're not like, you know, chipper and whatever, conforming to all the norms like the in, you know, in the therapeutic there is like, no, you're you're enough, you're good enough, et cetera. Like this is like the inverse, which is to say, like, no, what it what it takes for you to actually like actualize and be a self successfully in the world is to have a a friend group that is curated simply to uh, produce this particular idealized vision uh, of yourself. Um, So, I I mean, so like there there will be a lot of people who say like, no, how how could that possibly be eugenics? Um, And I think what you're kind of showing here is that, you know, regardless of uh, the way that it gets sort of tracked now, this idea that the purpose of social bonds or social connections is the production of this idealized human is like sort of in very like it's not even like 
oh, these people are like, you know, sitting there and like doing skull measurements, which is the way that like, you know, the, the sort of conventional, like uh, stereotypical <laughs> eugenic act. Yeah. Um, but it's also instead, true. It's, and some of them it's are. Sort of, yeah. <laughs> right. But it's sort of like definitionally eugenic because mm-hmm. that's the sort of the 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 genesis of the, the project of eugenics uh, to begin with, which is to create this ideal human being. Right. It, it really with these things, it really is. I mean, you know, if if some of this history has um, been a bit, uh, you know, scattered, even there are just so many facets of it and so many places that sort of like the eugenic ideology goes and filters in through throughout the course of the 20th century. It really is like it once you once you kind of look under one rock, there are always like 12 rocks underneath that one. You know what I mean? Right. Like so so much of the sort of fundamental political philosophy of United States socially or like American society is is a eugenic philosophy. Right. Unfortunately. And I think that's why I think, you know, that's why you see stuff like this just so commonly just you know right out there like oh no it's not you know this isn't uh this this isn't like the bad thing this isn't race science or whatever this is uh, i'm just saying it's human nature man right it's just human nature it's just evolutionary advantage bro you you gotta surround yourself with positivity you know whatever like can't have a positive life if you surround yourself with negative people am i right (laughs) well yeah i mean it's and and this stuff is everywhere it's like once you see it you can't unsee it and you'll see it pop up over and over and over and over again because it's become this really hegemonic you know sort of heuristic of some sort of biological natural truth about social relations and society and people but um you know as we talk about all the time this individuation myth this like whole eugenic ideology you know the material effects that it has on people's lives is is just disastrous and we've been you know working with these systems as they've developed for years and this is really just the foundation for so many things like means testing and like you know as you were mentioning earlier like policing medicaid recipients to make sure that they don't have you know too many shoes because they're single women to avoid like they're not supposed to have male visitors overnight so there should only be enough shoes for that many people in the house or whatever counting the shoe sizes like and this is like this is how that stuff becomes real and is made legitimate right well yeah and it's and it's ever more insidious because it doesn't seem political in fact right like that's right. that's that's the the danger of the therapeutic kind of like register is it's like it, it it seems you know um it, it's intended to to appear just like a pretty neutral, friendly uh, self-help guide. Right, which is why it's important to sort of force that political context on it because the whole game is to try and avoid it. So, I mean, you know, if this stuff depresses you, like this is actually the way to combat it is to actually force and repoliticize something that like hides in its depoliticization and and sort of uh, faux legitimacy as a law of nature. I think that might be a good place to leave it for today. Uh, Listeners, thank you so much for supporting the show as always. We really appreciate it. We'll catch you later in the week in the main feed episode. Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. All right. See you later. My friends Go tell you about my friends 
My favorite thing about that risk calculator, this is probably something that I'll throw at the end, but my favorite thing about Emily Oster's risk calculator, which we did not talk about um, weeks ago when we talked about it on the show, is that you could, so you know how, because it's a Google Doc, you can Mm -hmm. see that there are X number of people viewing it at the same time. The amount of people viewing it at any one time was unfortunately when she put it up really ridiculous and kind of depressing to me. But the funny thing is you could see that like Emily Oster as the owner of the document, you could see that she was online and she didn't disable the like start video call button. <laughs> so like if you <laughs> had been on there, you could have like clicked on start video call to, like, to, try and call <laughs> to try and start like a video call. Hell with yeah. Emily yeah. Oster. Um, Absolutely. So, you know, missed opportunities. Ugh, love it. Love it.